0: To Media Democracy. It's a podcast about politics, the media, and the politics of the media. My name is Dan Hind, and I'm joined as ever by my co host Tom Mills, and also by Dave Waring. Dave is our first return guest on the show. Um, Dave, welcome to Media Democracy. Hi. Dave is a teaching fellow in international relations at Royal Holloway, part of the University of London. Uh, He's also a writer. He's written um, a piece recently for New Socialist, which we'll perhaps talk about. In the course of the show. The, the piece is called Stephen Lawrence and the Hostile Environment, and it's well worth taking a look at as well. Now, the theme of the show today is a recent programme that was broadcast on April the 14th by Radio 4. It's part of their archive on Four Strand called 50 Years, 50 Years on Rivers of Blood. So today we're going to be talking about. The program itself, about the uh, prequel to the, to the broadcast, um, about the contemporary context now, and also about the uh, the speech in its own historical context. To start with, I wanted to what we want. I wanted to sort of share some thoughts on really, in a sense, why we're talking about the speech at all. Which is that the presenter of the show tweeted. Um, the day before it was broadcast, um, that something along the lines of for the first time ever, you know, Powell's speech is to be broadcast in full, and that created an air of controversy around the show, um, that made it much more visible perhaps than it might have been otherwise. Um, I mean, Dave, 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 how did you hear about the show? Did you did you see sort of see it flagged up on Twitter, or, or how did it sort of cross your path?
1: Yeah, I heard about it first through that tweet that the um, show together um, sent out. And it, the tone of that tweet was kind of like breathless excitement, wasn't it? Oh, we've got this exciting um, opportunity to listen to the whole of the, of the rivers of blood speech. So it was really all judged the tone of that tweet, really crass in the sense that it gave you the impression that they didn't understand the nature of the material that they were dealing with that they thought it was exciting rather than troubling. I mean, um, look, I'm a I'm a person of colour. My mum came over here from one of the Commonwealth countries in the mid-60s. Um, so I grew up in Britain in suburbs, Kent-London borders in the, in the 80s and early 90s. Um, and that sh- the shadow of that speech hung over people. You know, it was the... It was a justification for every bit of verbal abuse you got in the street or in school or in your workplace. Um, Acts of violence, acts of discrimination that people like us suffered over those years were really sort of justified and informed by that speech. So that speech isn't a bit of fun, you know. Um, It was an act of racial demagoguery. And to see... People that see it presented in an almost kind of trivialising way, it, was, um, it didn't engender confidence, you know. And um, my view, my view of it at the time was, well, I'm not in principle against hearing that speech. I don't think it should be, you know, totally banned from the airwaves or anything like that. But I think the way it should be presented is... Is through critique because we critique should be critically interrogated because it's uh, and you know with its with its nature with its race of racist nature with its nature is a piece of racial demagoguery, um, well understood. But what I expected and what turned out to be the case was that you know the BBC don't have the the capability of, of presenting it in that way. They don't have the um, the capacity to to engage with that text responsibly. And that's what proved to be the case. I think.
0: I mean, that's, that's a really interesting kind of point of departure because I think it, it seemed to suffer from this, this very peculiar BBC addiction to the, the fantasy of balance.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: In the way that the, the, the piece was critiqued, in that, as you say, rather than take it as what it was, which, and we can talk a bit about the <laughs> concepts of the speech, um, I'm getting quite a lot of background noise. Dave, we're getting quite a lot of background noise from you, which I'm a bit worried about on the recording. Um, That's not me. That's not me. Is that Tom? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I, it's, it's coming across the mind,
1: but it's not... Sens- uh, I can hear things that sound like movement, but I'm not moving,
0: so... Right. It may be... Maybe I'm just... I'm casting the finger on flame, but <laughs> it's probably me. Um... So uh, we can talk a bit about I think we will talk a bit about the content of the speech itself. Um but the way, as you say, the way that it was f- there was a sort of there was a presentation of a spectrum of voices to talk about um the speech. And for example, Simon Heffer was was granted an opportunity to sort of commentate on it. Um And as such wasn't challenged, it was just, it was a, it was a, as it were, a strand of opinion about the speech, um, that was deemed to be part of what, what they would take to be a, a balanced treatment of it. Yeah. Um, let's talk a bit about the, the content of the speech itself, because I was certainly, I was struck by how, how vicious and, and like blatant the racism of the speech was, I think there's been an interesting process of sanitization that's gone on around the speech in the in in the period since it, it was given. In that I know that I knew the phrase rivers of blood and I knew that he'd he'd sort of used these sort of classical analogies, but I had not really registered just how violent a lot of his language was. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, it's blood curdling. That's this is what I mean about it being um about it being racial demagoguery. I think there's a, there's a number of Things that you can point to in the speech which have echoes in um, in modern political discourse in today's political discourse when it comes to when it comes to race when it comes to to immigration and then there's another few aspects that are just kind of blood-curdling. So maybe start with the racist aspects because um, I mean, unfortunately, it seems for some members of the political class and for quite a few members of the public as well. It seems we need to literally go back to kindergarten and explain why this stuff is racist. This idea, first the way he conceives of the people that he's talking about, Um, they're very clearly divided into racial categories. A black man holding the whip hand over the white man, this kind of image that he invokes. Um, A nation um, heaping up its own funeral pyre. That doesn't mean a nation is in a nation of its citizens. It means a nation is in a white nation. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the end of, of white Britain at the hands of black and brown people. He's explicitly um, invoking these kinds of images of racial war and of the threat of one race to another or, or outsiders to to a, to a specific race. When he talks about rivers of blood, he means racial war. That's, that's what he's referring to. These are all really far-right tropes, you know. Um, you hear far-right people today talking about the demographic threat to um, to Europe, to the West, from from Islam or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's a straightforward, you know, it's just very, very straightforward racism and done in a very demagogic way, as if to say to white Britons, you are under threat. And even, you know, say, one example, he gives one black person buying a house on your street is the beginning of, an end, of the end, is it to say. Or, you know, the small amounts of immigrations we've had up to this point are the beginnings of the end of Britain as you know it. So it's it's inflammatory and it's racist. And then you look at the aspects of it which have really, really modern echoes. And one of them is the classic free speech and um, political correctness thing. All the way through it, he presents himself as a brave truth-teller yeah. right? and... Um, someone who is being oppressed by a liberal elite. Now, this, this, this is really classic. If you look at people like all those guys guys who write for Spiked, you know, lots of Brendan O'Neill and what have you, um, but this, this wider sort of anti-PC culture, how does it frame racism? It frames racism as the, quote-unquote, legitimate concerns of ordinary people which have been ignored by a liberal elite. Yeah. this is literally the framing of Enoch Powell's speech. On the one hand, there are ordinary people with their legitimate concerns, like um, like the racist woman who doesn't want to rent out her property to black people because these black people are a threat to her, or like the guy who has this paranoid fantasy about the black ha- man holding the whip hand over him. Those are people who are ordinary people with legitimate concerns. And on the other hand... There's the archbishops and the, um, and the politicians who, who are completely out of touch with ordinary people who don't understand their legitimate concerns and who want to repress um, this kind of brave truth-telling in a kind of censorious way. So it really is all there. You can see how the modern right and a big, great big chunk of the modern right. And you know, not only is it them that echo these, these things, but these themes you hear on the centre-left nowadays, these are the themes you hear from people on the centre. You know, this division of all people with their legitimate concerns and a metropolitan elite that doesn't understand these legitimate concerns. Using that to whitewash racism,
0: bringing,
1: in, bringing the issue of class into it, as if to say, it's only ordinary people are racist, or, or who have these legitimate concerns, and it's only the elite who are anti-racist which is very far from the case, I mean this is an elite guy there's another aspect that's, that's echoed today, this is a guy, very much of the elite, Enoch Powell ventriloquizing working class people um, to cover up his own bigotry, whereas you know, you have, anti-racist can be working class and racist can be upper classes, you know that, that, that's just as common so all these things are in play, and we we see them today. And we, this was like the, the blueprint for a lot of that. Effect.
0: I mean, it's. It, I mean, it, as a side note, you know, Powell um, fantasized about being. He wanted to be the viceroy of India, um, and yeah. he comes out of a, um, a deep, deep sort of marinated in an imperial ideology about British yeah. exceptionalism and so on. One of the things that's striking about the speech, though, is the. The extent to which it draws on America um, for uh, to give kind of a degree of sort of hallucinatory credibility to the idea of a race war. He yeah. gave the speech on the twentieth of April, um, and he was talking in the speech about race riots and the sort of the volatility of race relations in the United States and how. That was, as it were, an unavoidable fact of American history, but, but the British were willing it on themselves. And yeah. what what he doesn't mention, and what wasn't mentioned as far as I could tell in the commentary around the speech, was that on April the 4th, 16 days earlier, Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Yeah. So the, the the airways would have been full of pictures of urban America in flames. Um, because of the ass- assassination of Martin Luther King and, and the death of the hope of um, constitutional reparation, if you like, for um, for the the uh, experience of uh, blacks in America of massive v- violence and prejudice, um, and yet he's using that as a uh, as a jumping off point to to sort of paint a picture of Britain's future, and I, it makes me wonder the extent to which Powell is drawing on and, as it were, anglicising the so-called Southern strategy of Nixon, where Nixon is brilliant at mobilising white paranoia about, um, uh, about race in the United States to build a massive electoral majority in 1968. And I'm wondering the extent to which Enoch Powell is acting here as a kind of political entrepreneur, and doing that very English entrepreneurial thing of seeing what works in America and just saying, well, let's do that here.
1: I think that's very perceptive. I think that's very, very much what's happening. As, as you rightly say, that those riots that were happening in the US at that time were a response to the fact that, you know, black civil rights activists had been working for 10 years plus to challenge this kind of apartheid system that they'd been living in for 100 years after the proceedings sort 200 or 300 years of slavery. They've been fighting for that in a peaceful, democratic way, and the response had been just sustained violence from the state, culminating in the assassination of one of their one of their leading figures. And some of the frustration um, burst out onto the streets, and you know briefly. And what he's present he's presenting that as the inevitable consequence of, of frankly, of black people getting above their station. Now, if you t- turn that to that comment about the black man holding the whip hand over the white man, you start to see what's really going on, this kind of paranoia about, we've kept these people down yeah. for a long, long time. What happens if they get their revenge? And, I mean, all that, there's so much that's twisted about that way of looking at things, so much that's twisted about, the, about that way of looking at social relations, he is very much playing on that paranoia. Um, and part of the paranoia has to do with the overturning of the rightful social order. You know, the rightful social order has us, you know, white people at the top and these people um,
0: further down.
1: Right, literally know, as,
0: are, are as subject peoples, like yeah. in very recent memory. And again, yeah. I think he's, you know, I, can, I think he can see the sort of rich political gains to be had for people who are disoriented by the end of the colonial empire. Um, and the sense that they'd been brought up in an ideology which, which no longer had purchase. Um, yes. And as you say, I think his, you know, his drawing on these, these r- racist tropes. I mean, your point about the reversal of a natural order is really interesting, and the sense in which there's a sort of twisted replaying of, of an imperial reality as a kind of, of a fantasy. One of the one of the current features of British imperialism, and I think American imperialism as well, is the way that they project onto the the, the people that they uh, exploit and um, subjugate. They project onto them the exact things that they themselves are doing. Yes. So you look at the the image of the Chinese in the nineteenth century is of people who abduct white women. And people who peddle opium. And the reality of the 19th century British um, imperialism in in China is that they were abducting massive numbers of indentured workers. I mean, literally kidnapping them and taking them to work in Malaya and places like that, and forcing the opium trade on them. So the image of the Chinese, the the, the Chinese in the imperial imagination is, is, as it were, a kind of distorted reflection of the reality of the British in in China, um, and something similar clearly is going on in the way that the the, the figure of the um, of the black or the Indian person is being is being evoked. Really,
1: um, this is really this is really telling in terms of Powell's worldview and how right the right guy is because he can't conceive of human relations that aren't, A, broken up on racial lines, and aren't, B, about violence and hierarchy. So the prospect of equality um, for black people, for him, is a threat, because he can't conceive of the idea where people might, A, get along as people, and B, get along as people on an egalitarian basis. There has to be some sort of fight or you know hierarchy going on between the quote-unquote races. Um, that's really interesting, I think... You know, the other point that's worth making is I think we want to try and show these connections as much as possible because that, that, between what's between that speech and what's happening today. And one of them is this thing about threats to the modern social order. Now this is really the rightful social order. So. This is really tied in, I think, with almost the DNA of the modern ideology of the right. We see this in Trump. And we see this in the Brexit vote as well. And part of it has to do with the the anxiety of decline. So with Trump, you've got to make America great again. Um, with Brexit, you've got to take back control. Um, a big part of right-wing Brexit thinking had to do with um, anxiety about the loss of empire and Europe joining Europe being seen as a kind of emasculation of British global power. But a lot of that also has to do with challenges to the natural order of things. Um, When you look at the Brexit vote when it's broken down, what you find is that voting for Brexit doesn't correlate that strongly with class. But what it does correlate with very strongly is right-wing social attitudes, including things like opposition to multiculturalism, opposition to feminism, opposition to LGBT rights. And it seems like a lot of right-wing thinking got magnetised to the pole of that Brexit campaign. And a lot of these people were people who, like Powell, had real worries about the natural social order as they saw it being challenged. Now, with Trump, you barely need to discuss it. It's just obvious. The guy's a manifestation of those kind of paranoid pathologies. We're the guys, us white men like Trump, are supposed to be on top and look at all these people who are supposed to be below us in the packing order trying to challenge trying to challenge us, let's try and put them in their place, whether it's, you know, lock her up, or, you know, these other little sort of rhetorical tropes that Trump comes out with. And Powell is just the, he's the blueprint for so much of that.
2: Yeah, I, I thought it was really striking. I don't know if, if you noticed, um, David, towards the end of the programme, when Powell discusses what he calls communalism, and you know, which is basically the idea of extending certain um say, cultural or religious recognitions to ethnic minorities which today we would call multiculturalism and he's you know he really stands very strongly against that um, and makes reference to the race relations act and that was another area where I thought it was very striking the extent to which you could see in powells speech laying the groundwork for current um, conservative um, approaches to um, yeah, racial equality, essentially. I mean, so much of the speech resonates. And I think it's interesting, you know, what what, what you were saying, Dan, about um, Powell being a, a trailblazer. I mean, this is sort of an aside, but he was also, a, um, you know, he was a neoliberal um, and a sort of right before it was taken up by the rest of the conservative right. And I think the way to understand Powell and the way I think the conservatives themselves understand Powell is a kind of you know, they see him as a sort of intellectual kind of visionary, but really, he was a conservative intellectual who was trying to, yeah, um, feel around in the dark in a at a time at which conservatism and um and and the and the elite themselves in Britain were in a state of anxiety. I mean, we think about if you think about the colonial con- the context of yeah, Britain as declining colonial power. He always resented the United States. Um, as, you know, a force which has displaced Britain as the sort of foremost power in the world. And he's trying to sort of craft out in that speech, I guess, the sort of racist conservatism which would be more fitting to the kind of post-colonial age. And it seems to me that's where a lot of the white nationalism, which he sort of, which, you know, runs all the way through that speech in a way that actually I wasn't quite expecting it to be as overtly racist and white nationalist as it actually is. I mean, it really is... I mean, it really is a fascist speech, and I, it was hard to really see it in in a different way. Um, and and yeah, going back to what you were saying, Dave, about this this idea of um, yeah the people versus the elite. I mean, this, this seems to be very, you know, very deeply rooted in contemporary conservatism in um, in the US and and the UK as well. I mean, it's something that Cory Robin talks a lot in his his work on conservatism that you know this this idea that conservatism isn't just about um, preserving the, the world order as it is, but reasserting and reinventing um, hierarchy and, and power for like contemporary circumstances. And it seems like that's what Powell tries to do here. And he definitely was able to define, yeah, conservative ideology, conservative movements in a really powerful way. I mean, it really does. You know, it's, it's not an historic artifact, this speech. It really did feel like, to me, an incredible resonance with, with um, contemporary ideas about immigration.
1: Yeah, I mean, this, that um, legitimate concerns of ordinary people versus the elite is something that's just, that is the standard framing of debate about race and immigration in this country, almost across the spectrum, including a great big chunk of the Labour Party, and frankly, you know, a great big chunk of the left as well. Um, There is a, a part of the left which, frankly, does not get it on immigration, and which is brought into this whole frame whereby, you know, it's just the legitimate concerns of ordinary people in seaside towns and all the rest of it. It's something that, you know, you find Guardian journalists being sent on their all expenses paid day trips to confirmation bias on sea. And they go out and they talk to people, and, you know, all they hear are legitimate concerns about the rate of change in communities. They don't have the critical ear to hear that as people don't want black and brown people moving into their street, you know. And, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a very familiar kind of rhetorical trope that's really, really dominant today that Powell, that Powell um, pioneered. And what, what it does, it's like a two-stage rhetorical um, manoeuvre, if you like. First thing to say, the first thing is to point to this hostility to immigration and people of colour as being something uniquely held by working working class people ordinary people um, and then we, which is false you know you will find racism all the way up and down the class spectrum um, particularly from the ruling class I think it's fundamentally a ruling class ideology of racism um Edward side documents it in terms of racism towards people in the Middle East and the thing generalizes you know. But that's the first rhetorical manoeuvre, the, the, just to identify hostility to people of colour and to migrants as, as being identified with the working class. And then the second stage of that is to say, so because these people are working class, which is false, just to say, because these people are working class, you wouldn't want to disagree with them, would you? you know, what does that make you if you disagree with them? You must be some kind of snob, some kind of elitist snob. So that kind of two-stage rhetorical manoeuvre Gives authenticity to xenophobia and racism, and delegitimizes criticism of racism and xenophobia. And of course, as I say, obscures actually obscures two things. It obscures the racism and xenophobia of the middle and upper classes, which is absolutely rampant and always has been. And the other thing it it obscures is the anti-racism of many people in the working class, a great many people, and also working class people of colour. You know, people who also have plenty of legitimate concerns about racist violence from the state and from some of their neighbours. Of the kind we've seen, for example, with the Windrush scandal, with Stephen Lawrence's death, we, you know, 25th 25th anniversary of his death, we marked a few days ago. Um, It's a very, very clever, multi dimensional rhetorical manoeuvre that's played. And so many people on the left have fallen for it, let alone people in in the centre. Um, and it's one that might have used to great effect for a long time. And if, and if, if anything, it, it is thriving at the moment, 50 years after fifty years after rivers of blood. All
0: right, all right. Yeah, I, mean,
2: I think one of, the, one of the reasons for that is that, the, you know, the, primarily the battle that, that Powell is fighting here um, is against the, the sort of liberal wing of the elite, basically. I mean, if you think uh, the context of what's going on here, you know, it's in the 1960s, the, the, the BBC, is itself has has kind of developed a certain kind of liberal liberal ethos which is quite which is rather distinct from the um 1930s you know overtly um imperialist bbc um some aspects of that are represent the strength of the labor movement and the uh, and the left others of it uh the more sort of i suppose cosmopolitan liberalism that has also o- always been an element of the of the British elite but he's yeah they, they it's I think Powell is and and this is the same with contemporary elite racism today um, they're primarily primarily interested in, in attacking um, liberals and using that as yeah a form of moral blackmail basically yeah. and you see it a lot who who do they, who do racists always go on about it's always what they call guardianistas or you know the elite um, cosmopolitans. Mm-hmm. And this is something, actually, it's probably worth saying that, you know, this this does, this feeds into factorism, even in its early stages, you know, like um, Keith Joseph used similar sort of language um, in, in when he makes that speech, at least to his resignation about, you know, the lower orders breeding, or whatever language he used, you know, sort of eugenicist kind of speech. Um, Powell, Powell sort of pioneers out in Britain and then we get to that, yeah, the, the situation today and of course the, the tabloids play a big part in that as well, you know, the where you get a shift, rightward shift in the popular press that then becomes like, you know, the the authentic voice of, you know, the working class Britain becomes the, we, what we lose then is the sort of social democratic um, left voice of the, of the British working class movement um, exactly at the point at which you know, Powell is sort of um, yeah, acting as this kind of conservative trailblazer for the for the British conservative movement, until we get to the point today where, you know, the the popular press, including of course like the lower middle class Daily Mail, are just absolutely committed to this 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 power vision to one extent or another.
0: I yeah. mean, this idea of of there being a, a an unholy alliance between a feet liberal um, poshos and violent threats to the social order. Again, has, you know, it has its a, it's a, it's a very American theme. It's it's one of the one of the elements in the sort of Nixonian politics of the 60s. And it's interesting in the way that, as you say, it lends a a, a kind of popular sh, or populist sheen to Thatcherism where figures like Roy Jenkins or figures associated with the post-war social order are portrayed as being almost like the useful idiots of the likes of Arthur Scargill. And you have a kind of, you know, you have a violent trade union movement that's being given cover by out-of-touch intellectuals like Michael Foote. And I think you see an echo of it as well in the way that Corbyn is presented as the sort of the hapless, um, uh, out-of-touch tribune of a movement that's actually a bunch of Bolshevik street fighters and bullies. Um, yeah. So, you, you see this kind of constantly reiterated um, the idea that there are these out of touch elites who are pro- providing cover for really deeply subversive threats. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I you
1: want. Know, um, in the debate between, what well, sort of war within the, within the Labour Party that's been going on for the last few years, you hear from the right of the Labour Party a lot of these power like themes like you know, these Corbynistas are all middle-class, croissory falafel-obsessed, wrestling right. dwellings, sort of, all these kind of tropes keep coming out. You forget that within Corbyn's constituency are some of the poorest wards in the country, you know. Um, you forget that, you know, that Diane Abbott's constituency is some of the poorest wards um, in the country. The, the, the idea that it's self-evident that if you're, from, if you're MP for Islington, you must be a... You know, detached from the realities of the world. I mean, you know, far from it. Um, so you see how the, all these things can get get, get mobilized mobilised um, within the discourse.
0: I wanted to talk a bit think... about the way in which the the, the program itself con- contributes to this this sort of this, the, uh, as it were, a fantasy power like fantasy politics. One of the things that was said in the commentary, not in the speech itself, is says he he clearly overstated. Um, the the extent to which immigration would create tension. Like, there were race riots in the 80s, there were race riots in 2001. And one of the things that, like, just passed unremarked in that was the, the fact, the simple fact that the race riots in the early 80s were a direct response to police brutality. Yeah,
1: yeah. Right? Yeah,
0: yeah. The people in Brixton didn't riot because they had cultural differences from people, they rioted because they kept being beaten up and, and, and killed by policemen. Yeah. Um and it was a response to that that finally triggered these these sort of street protests and yet that that was simply kind of it was sort of naturalized. It was like, well, of course, if people from different backgrounds come here, then there's bound to be a bit of a bit of it's like absolutely classic in terms of like you know
2: political discussions of this issue is that the actual reality of racism just disappears altogether. You know, it's very rare actually that you have discussions of racism on the BBC. they don't do programs about this, not in, not in the context of Britain. You'll have discussions about multiculturalism and 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 how you know you can organise a you know a polity on the basis of um, people from different religious or ethnic backgrounds. You know, that's that's the kind of basis of these conversations. But what you tend to lose in those conversations, yeah, is the reality of um, contemporary and historic racism that just somehow seems to disappear. and 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 That's why, for me, was most striking about the programme was the lack of discussion in the commentary about racism when what we were listening to was an incredibly racist speech and one that I thought was, yeah, as I said earlier, much more overtly racist and much more disturbing than I was was expecting it to be. David, what, what did you think in general of how the speech was broadcast and how the programme was put together and handled by the BBC.
1: Yeah, as I said before, when I um, when I first heard they were going to do it, the, the thing that sort of didn't engender much confidence was the sort of breathless way in which they were presenting the fact that they were going to be showing this, sort of broadcasting the whole speech. I'm not entirely against the idea of the whole speech being broadcast or the whole text being made available. But I think the way you approach it is important, the way you handle it is important. Do you approach it as a matter for debate or do you take as read from the start the facts that the speech was inflammatory, that it was racist demagoguery, and do with it on that basis? And they came far too close to the first than the second. Um, so if you listen to... The voice of the narrator. I think this is really crucial. The voice of the narrator, the emphasis, Rajan, I presume. Um, the, the voice of authority, the neutral voice, if you like, throughout the documentary, is completely uncritical of Powell until I think it's about the 54th of the 56 minutes of the program. Um, at the beginning, in the first three or four minutes of the program, when the, this narrator's voice introduces Powell and introduces the speech, it's almost reverential. He talks about Powell as an intellectual giant, as one of the great political figures of of modern Britain, alongside Cameron Attlee Attlee and Margaret Thatcher. Um, You know, he he, he talks about him in a very, very respectful way. And then after each section of the speech, um, this narrator's voice then comes back in, the, the the voice of authority, and summarises what we've just heard, and, and does it in a, in a way that's, that's not neutral at all. It's almost praising his, the guy's rhetorical skill. I'm sure that Amarajan thought he was being just neutral and descriptive. He wasn't at all. He was praising Powell's ability. Um, and not in a way that you know one might, one might talk about Hitler's ability as an orator, but do it with with the appropriate level of disgust for what he was doing. There was none of that. It was was essentially praise. So Amal Rajan continues throughout the programme on that basis, just acting as a completely neutral voice, until right at the very end, when he starts coming out with um, with his own conclusion on that. And the criticism that he offers of the speech, right at the very end, is absolutely feeble. It's um he says his other like speech was intemperate that it used uncivil language um the, he said by using uncivil language he made it difficult for white people to give voice to their fears in a way that was acceptable which is just really I mean I don't need to even say what's wrong with that um but it's an appalling way to frame it right in the last minute he says the speech was racist um, but throughout the program, He's been doing a lot. Just, been, and I'm just focusing on on, on the sort of authoritative voice of the narrator here. Mm. He's doing a lot to make Powell sound like, whether you agree with him or not, it's something you should take seriously. Something else he says about Powell. He says that, and we perhaps touched on this a moment ago, the idea that Powell was making a series of predictions which didn't come true. And he says he describes and He describes the speech as a failure. Now, this again is the deference of journalists to important people, no matter how badly those important people behave. Powell was not a neutral, good-faith analyst trying to make a series of social scientific predictions about what Britain would look like. That's not what he was doing. He was trying to whip up hatred. And Rajan is analysing it as though he was just making some predictions, which, which ended up... Not coming true, well, yeah, exactly,
0: saying, and not even yeah. not even just making predictions, but actually, like he was criticizing him. It seems on the basis that he, he was exaggerating,
1: right? Well, so he was
0: accepting yeah. the he was accepting the idea that, of course, this would cause disruption, but he overdid it with this ribs of blood stuff, right? And it, and it, again, it, it completely erased the fact that the, the the examples of racial, you know, disruption that happened are a response to, to institutional racism against immigrant communities.
1: Um, sorry. Anyway. Yeah, there's that, and there's the, the other aspect of it. So the the, the voice of the, the authoritative voice of the narrator is neutral on this deeply racist, hateful, inflammatory speech for 54 to 56 minutes of the program. That on its own is just a, a total lack of professionalism, and integrity, and responsibility on the on the part of the documentary makers. The other aspect of it, as, as I think Tom alluded to this earlier is the way the speech is discussed, um, and you have this sort of range of voices. Now, most of the voices were, were, were pretty critical, um, but you had a couple of voices who were basically just power apologists. So you had Simon Heffer as one example. Um, so Simon Heffer was able to power biographer. Mm-hmm. He was able to say, he was able to say absolutely without challenge from anyone that The speech wasn't racist, it was just about numbers. Now, yes, you should have you know, BBC, there's BBC balance, and there's balance, I guess, but either way, you know, fine to have a range of disagreeing voices. But when someone says something which is just factually incorrect, completely lacking in credibility, and whitewashing of text is as toxic as this, then you know, It's irresponsible to, 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 to give that a platform. To say that the speech wasn't racist and was just about numbers and to leave that unchallenged is... And that was is
2: kind of bizarre in the context of the programme as well because, I mean, first of all, we just heard a very long racist speech and secondly, I mean, the way the speech was presented, it was very much like Powell is, is a you know, the audience is a master orator. You know, it was really sort of setting up the drama of it, the language that Powell's using. So, you know, even within the context of The programme, it was very clear that the speech was intended as a rhetorical provocation. And yet, you know, we had this claim within the context of the same programme. Oh, yeah, he was just making a few points about, you know, um, yeah, the numbers of people who would be coming into Britain and like the balance of the population or whatever. And, you know, it was just even in the terms of the programme itself, that that was just completely incongruous. It was it was just kind
1: of bizarre. And you know how, I mean, in, in documentaries, when you have a range of voices, in a competently made, responsibly made documentary, when someone expresses a quite extreme opinion um, that's obviously nonsense, you will then have another voice saying why. You know, so someone like Heather might say the speech wasn't racist, and then you would cut to another interviewee who would explain why that's a nonsense point of view. But this didn't happen here at all. Heffer was able to say a couple of things. Um, at one point, you know, towards the end of the speech, the last part of the speech, um, Inok in Powell talks about this letter that it was received from a woman who um, is having terrible trouble with, with black people in her street, right? And it's it's thought that this letter was made up, at least, you know, he, he wasn't able to, to, to produce the letter. Um, and this is all part of hiding behind the things of ordinary people. Now, you have a part where Simon Heffer says, as his book, as Powell's biographer, he, talking to Powell's widow, turned Powell's house upside down trying to find this letter and couldn't find it. And Heffer said that he said to Powell's widow, this is going to cause me problems. What a fascinating quote that is. That not being able to find this letter is going to cause me problems. It would only cause you problems as to biography not Powell if you wanted to prove that Powell wasn't lying. So if you're a historian and you dedicate dedicated to the truth, or if you're an academic, or if you're just a person of some integrity, it doesn't cause you problems to find out what the facts are. And to find out, or for it to appear from your inquiries, this letter didn't exist. Um, it shouldn't be a problem to have but it clearly was. So that really, really revealed that Heffa was, um, you know, very much a sort of partisan on Powell's side. Um, uh, he's, he, by the way, in that section, he's given the last word on, le- on the question whether the letter exists or not. Um, he said, I'm absolutely sure it exists. He couldn't find it. He says, I'm absolutely sure it exists. And again, there's no challenge from saying that. One final thing on, on these people, these Powell apologists, who were given free reign, in this program, had David Goodhart um, a, yeah, was head of the think like, tank Demos, I sort of believe, um, and he's someone again who's you know in, who engages in this little bit concerns of ordinary people, etc., etc. Mm. So that, kind of, that kind of narrative. At one point, Goodhart says something a bit critical of Powell and that whip hand quote, but then says um, that there is an issue with what. Goodhart calls asymmetrical multiculturalism. Now, to me, asymmetrical multiculturalism from someone like David Goodhart is basically the way you describe the black man having the whip hand over the white man if you've got an Eastern education like David Goodhart has. Because what does that mean, asymmetrical multiculturalism? It means what the far right have always been complaining about for the last decade or two, that multiculturalism and racial equality and tolerance and all all, all the rest of it have resulted in unfair advantages to Mm. people of colour. It's a straightforwardly far-right narrative. And it is an echo of Powell saying, the black man holding the whip hand over the white man, the inversion of the proper social order. When David Goodhart talks about asymmetrical multiculturalism, again, you're having... You know, a Powell apologist whitewashing the views of being a Powell, find, trying to find ways in which the substance of those views should be taken should be taken seriously and, and listened to with sympathy. And again, this goes on questions um, in the documentary. So, the, 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 the framing of this whole thing with the authoritative writer's voice um, being completely neutral to the very last minute, and even then, giving really mild criticisms, and the other voices in the documentary debating the merits of this speech to some extent, some, some being, you know, good and critical, but a few just effectively power apologists going unchallenged. Um, it was what we expected, you know, very, very irresponsible handling of, of toxic material.
0: I mean, your point about them not starting from, as it were, a reality-based premise, like that this, is, this was a, a racist provocation and was intended... As such. And so, as you say, it becomes this zone of phony controversy. You know, was he racist? Wasn't he racist? Was there a letter? Wasn't there a letter? And so on. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting about that is that it, it deprives us of any chance to, to really understand what, what his motivation was. Because it seems to me that you can make a case that they are, as Tom said earlier, they're casting around for trying to find... A popular anti-socialist politics. They're trying to find a way of stitching together an electoral coalition that will be able to reverse the social democratic move of you know post nineteen yeah. forty-five, and that that's a way of talking about the speech that's that's enlightening. It seems to me it's like, but that that makes it political in a way that the BBC I think shies away from. The idea that Thatcherism relied for its mass support, in part by m- mobilizing themes that were being developed by the National Front in the 70s, is, is inadmissible because we want to talk about whether Thatcher should have a statue in, in Parliament. right? Yeah. We want to put yeah. her safely in the zone of great figures like Bodicea that may be controversial but aren't, they're not, you know, not, not, not something that people, serious people worry about that much. And again, I think this speaks to a sort of a willed sort of idiocy by the BBC. It's like it can't seem to talk about our recent history in a way that takes takes note of the facts. I think in the final the final section, we should talk really a bit more about the contemporary context now. Amber Rudd has just resigned as Home Secretary um, over the um, the growing scandal surrounding the um, uh, forcible deportation and, frank- frankly, kind of in- administrative abuse of people who, you know, who Im- Im- came to the UK in the in the period directly before Powell made his speech. Um, what does the Windrush scandal tell us about about the continuing, you know, the afterlife of Powellism?
1: So. The Windrush scandal fundamentally comes out of this hostile environment policy that Theresa May um, introduced in immigration acts in 2014, 2016, and that in turn comes out of um, the thing that her and David Cameron agreed, which is the idea that immigration, net immigration levels should be should be driven down for some reason. Now, that whole framing within the political culture of immigration. As a problem, as self evidently a problem, you know, that we don't even discuss whether immigration is a good or bad thing. We, we accept that immigration is a bad thing, and it's a question of how you deal with it. I mean, that, that was just hegemonic until very recently. And even now, in the, in the midst of the Windrush scandal, when you get down to the specifics of what people are saying, it's not being challenged that much, you know. I mean, Labour's position on it hasn't been terrific. I think it's worth looking at what the left and what Labour and what Labour are saying and doing, because it gives you a sense of the extent to which this discourse is money. Obviously, the right takers are given that immigration is a bad thing. The Labour Party treated immigration as fundamentally a bad thing for quite a while, notwithstanding the fact that um, you know we had free movement within the EU from 2004. Well, from, you know we had free movement within the EU. And then we had the accession of the these European countries in 2004. New Labour were actually really, really tough, and they tried to show they were tough on on immigration to the extent they could be within those parameters. So they tried to show that they were tough on asylum seekers. It was them that opened Yarls Wood. It was them that um, gave asylum seekers vouchers because they thought they couldn't be trusted with real money. Um, it was them who tried to make a virtue about being tough on asylum seekers and all the rest of that. And that was just standard through New Labour, this kind of authoritarian, punitive approach to people who were deemed to be um, you know, unwelcome in Britain. And that opened the, the, the door for UKIP to a large extent, because if racism and xenophobia aren't being challenged by the left, then they, be, then they become sort of common sense ways of looking at the world, and that made it easier for UKIP to make its case. Um, and even with, with, you know, people like Corbyn and Abbott, who, uh, you know, what we had have, with we have Miliband with his controls and immigration mug and controls and immigration carpet that ridiculous stone. But then with Corbyn and Abbott, who were amongst the maybe sort of half dozen Labour MPs who were against this whole approach and who spoke out against it, who spoke out against, you know, opening places like Wood, who spoke out against the hostile environment. Um, policy that may introduce in 2014 while Labour was abstaining on it, even now mm-hmm. because they don't control the party still, like, because they don't really control their, the shadow cabinet still outside of them who have been, those two have been really good in the last few weeks, criticising hostile environment drawing it back to that, you've got other ministers, you know saying I'm still in favour of the hostile environment I'm still in favour of targets we have to deal with illegal immigration a people are illegal so this whole narrative of immigration being fundamentally a problem of, immigra- of so-called illegal immigration, people who are undocumented, undocumented migrants being a threat to the country, um, is hegemonic. And it's, it's still really, really difficult to challenge that, even in the midst of the, of the Windrush scandal. Um, so again, with this kind of modern powerism, is absolutely thriving even now.
0: Yeah, I think you're, you know, I think that's a salutary point, really. It's very, I mean, it's, it is striking how how muted much of the Labour Party has been about this and and how much more comfortable they've been in the idea that somehow Amber Rudd was, was caught up in a, a sort of administrative misdemeanours um, and therefore, you know, has had to resign for not controlling her department as opposed to re- resigning for for con- precisely controlling her department. I mean, you know, she was driving this, these forced deportations and driving these these terrible, terrible stories. Um, yeah, and
1: the, the way she's been discussed as well, and again, I want to point to the sort of liberal centre-left media rather than the right, just to show the extent of the kind of hegemony of these ways of thinking. The extent to which liberal and centre-left journalists and political figures have been praising Amber Rudd as a liberal Um, and saying, you know, she's she's effectively a sort of benign, liberal person who, you know, maybe she's slipped up, but we shouldn't be too hard on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It just shows how little black lives matter. It just shows how little the lives and well-being and safety of people of colour matter to the political class. That Amber Rudd can manage this system, this institutionally racist, hostile environment system, this vicious, cruel system, that she could be told time and again that the system is wrecking people's lives and ignore it until it becomes a political scandal. And yet still, still, she's portrayed by people in the centre-left and liberal media, on the right of the Labour Party even, as mm-hmm. basically a liberal person. It doesn't really matter what the facts are. It doesn't matter how she treats people of colour, how her department treats people of colour. She's a liberal because I don't know, I guess it has to do with her position on Brexit perhaps, That so she's If she's remained, then she's a liberal. It doesn't matter, you know, any of the other facts. I think that's really interesting, the extent to which people's credentials, the credentials of um, leading figures like this, can be really kind of almost ironclad, you know. And how they treat people of colour and black people is almost like a, um, it's an an irrelevance. And I think that's really telling about the mentality of, of centre-left and,
0: and liberal journalism. Well, I, I, yeah, I think it speaks to, as well to this kind of this metropolitan dementia where I imagine that Amber Road's quite a personally charming or pleasant person. She's probably quite easy to get on with. She's probably quite a lot. You know, I think that there are a lot of people who find her personally congenial um yeah and We're therefore like
2: a bane right so like they they just
0: yeah they yeah i mean she play. probably doesn't you know she doesn't talk about rivers of blood and like she doesn't say overtly racist or homophobic or uh, like you know she's she's not like in personal terms necessarily a bigot or anything right and people take this as like as a proxy for any political judgment at all right so, she, yeah. because of her personal affect, how she comes across over dinner or over lunch, um, substitutes for, as it were, her political function. Um, and it, you know, you saw this as well, where people were saying things like, "Well, you know, she had, a, she was very, she was very busy. She would just lost her father. How could she possibly have known about all these details of the administration?" Not understanding there is a distinction between her as a person and her as a minister right? Yeah, yeah. It's not acceptable to say, oh, I was having a really bad day and I missed that. You are responsible for your ministry. That's supposed to be how it works. Yeah. yeah I mean, and, it's supposed
2: to be a democratic constitutional mechanism. for.
0: A... That's right, yeah. and lots of people have resigned for things that were not their, you know, that they weren't, as it were, in their personal in a personal sense, their fault, but they, they took ministerial responsibility. It's a constitutional convention. And what's bizarre is that this kind of like, this hyper-personalisation is often being conducted by people who get all tearful about the unwritten constitution and how it's great that we have a, you know, we have all these conventions and it's all, you know, it's like, you under, you should, you've got to understand the unwritten constitution um, if you want to defend it. Um, but, well, yeah. Well, they're, they're th- that, and this, and this is
1: related to it, is the extent to which um, Yvette Cooper has been receiving a huge amount of for, for the role she's played in the last week or so um, in terms of holding Amber Rudd to account. Whereas Diane Abbott, who's a shadow Home Secretary, by the way, is, is just being completely ignored. And let's not forget, when the hostile environment policy was brought in in 2014, Yvette Cooper was a shadow Home Secretary and she had Labour MPs abstain on the measure. You know, She was basically in favour of it. And she abstained on it. And it was that hostile environment, because there's no way to create a hostile environment purely for undocumented migrants. There's no way to do it. It's bound to be a hostile environment for people who are migrants, full start, for people who look like migrants or sound like migrants. There's no way it's going to come out as anything other than this, and this is what Diane Abbott and Jeremy Corbyn said at the time. Yeah. But Yvette Cooper showed total lack of judgment. Ed Miliband showed total lack of judgment in not standing up to... Um, to that bill when it was 9 saying Um Diane Abbott and Jeremy Corbyn were very, very perceptive in, in, in predicting exactly what would happen and have since been proven right. And yet Yvette Cooper, who was actually asking some pretty feeble questions in that select committee about targets and all the rest of it, was kind of missing the point. And obviously she can't ask the really searching questions because she abstained on the whole thing to begin with she's been the one getting all the praise from sort of mainstream commentary at the right wing of the Labour party and Diane Abbott has been completely ignored now again we we come back as we do with Diane Abbott to this uncomfortable fact, and it's true across the political class and unfortunately it's true within the left as well the way Diane Abbott is spoken about and treated is just so telling, it's so blatant, the way this black woman is treated and diminished and demeaned and dismissed by so many people within politics. The fact that, effectively we can be getting the credit and Diane Abbott isn't getting the credit. It's just so blatant. I think if you're a person of colour in particular, you just find this stuff so familiar, you can see it in my life. And I think we all know within the left and within Labour as well, to a large extent, the amount of times people... You know, behind closed doors, the way they'll speak about Diane Abbott, the way they'll you know, demean her and diminish her, all these things come out, you know, um, behind closed doors. I think those of us on the left and within the Labour family will, will recognise that. You know, you see it from people you don't expect to see it from. Um, so, yeah, this last few weeks, I think it's been, it's been good in the sense that a hideous scandal has been exposed, and some of those people who've been treated really badly are hopefully going to now get. You know, some degree of justice, or you know, the boot of the state is going to be lifted up there next to a certain degree, and that's a good thing. And we've seen being harsh on immigration, too harsh on immigration, having a political cost for politicians, and that hasn't been true for a long time. That's long past time, and we've had um, that be the case. But it's exposing so many things that are rotten with our political culture when it comes to race and immigration. And um, you know, when people talk back about rivers of blood speech and say these predictions didn't come true this is beside the point the amount of stuff that speech anticipated the amount of toxin it poured into the British political culture I think this week has shown how much of that is still very much there
0: um, well I think that's a um, it's not a it's not a cheering note to end on but I think it is a note to end on um, Powell is still very much with us all these years on 50 years on hard to believe um, it remains only to thank um thank you david for for joining us today um okay. to reiterate um david's article for new socialist is stephen lawrence and the hostile environment um do take a look at that we'll try and put a link in the show notes or on twitter uh my name is dan Hind, i'm at dan Hine on twitter And my co-host today was Tom Mills. Tom, are you still with us? I sure am. Tell us your Twitter handle, Tom, in case anyone doesn't know.
2: Well, you should know by now, but I'm a underscore Mills on
1: Twitter, if you'd like more of me online.
0: And David, how can people find you on Twitter?
1: Um, It's David, yeah, it's just my name, David Waring. Um, I'm rarely on it, but I'm occasionally, so yeah.
0: Well, it's always nice to be followed on Twitter at any event great um thank you again for joining us and we look forward to speaking to you all soon or speaking at you soon